morning. Um, this morning's scripture reading is Luke 2, 41 to 52. Oh, it's there. Perfect. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up according to the custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who learned, or sorry, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand that they they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down, and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's take that down for just a moment. A little bit distracting. Can you just put a, let's pray for the hearing of the word. Makes me feel all sentimental looking at it on the screen. Heavenly Father, would you open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, and our lives to your word. We often pray that your word would be open to us, but it's us that needs to be open to your word. It's the bigger reality than, than our lives. So teach us, redeem my words, uh, my failings, my, uh, you know, pet points that I sometimes like to make. Would you uh, speak uh, even through me, but at times in spite of me? And uh, give us ears to hear as a community together. For your glory, we ask that we would reflect your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now we can put that back up. This picture, this is, uh, for those who don't know, these are Jennifer and I, our two boys, Aiden and Matthew. Um, But it's uh, in 2006. That's actually a DVD that I made. I make a family DVD each year with, like, photos and video and whatever. And it's the only place I could find the photo when I went to look for it. This was taken at a Seattle Mariners game. The last time I was down at Safeco Field, um, I'm actually going next week to a game. So, anyway, not that you care. But... um, (laughs) and uh, this was the last time I went. It was just the three of us, Aiden, Matt, and myself. And, and Matthew is the younger boy in the red. And uh, I will have to pay him again because I... Anyway. Um, but uh, some of you have heard this before. But this photo, actually, I like it. But it also makes, causes great anxiety in me, which I wonder, why did I choose it for the cover of the DVD then? But anyway, because about 10 minutes after this photo, I lost Matt. So this was before the game. We got there really early. We were sitting really high up, and I bought them Mariners hats and everything. And and then uh, we went to the washroom. And by then it was crowded, and and, uh, Aiden and Matt with me, and everything was great. I'm just being like a wonderful father. 
Um, and then uh, we're leaving. I thought all three of us, but I turn and I'm talking to Aiden, and I said, where's Matthew? And he wasn't there. And by now, there's thousands of people around. And, you know, for the, so for the first five, ten seconds, you're like, okay, well, where is he? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you, that type of thing, right? Um, and uh, he'd gone out a different exit of the, of the washroom. And uh, we went back to our seat. We, we first of all, like, went in the washroom, went, looked around the washroom, looked all around that area. Um, and then my angst is starting to build and go back to the seats because they were really close to where the washroom was. He's not there. Um, I just start, I, I, I feel it a bit as I'm telling you again. I just start to think, oh, no, everything's okay. Todd, calm down. He's, they, you know, people can find kids and he'll, it'll be all okay. And I didn't go to the worst case scenario because that's usually just crazy. But you, you're, you're just this angst is building up back and forth, back and forth. It was about 12 minutes, I think, something like that. It seemed like a lot longer than that. We go back to the seats again, thinking maybe he's found the seats and, and uh, he hasn't, and now other people, and that's when it starts to get bad. Other people realize you're looking for somebody, and people are being kind to you, which makes you feel worse. And, and, uh, and then uh, my cell phone rang. And, you know, I don't know, fluky or good parenting or whatever, not that I could be accused of that hugely, but Matt uh, must have known my, my cell phone number. And so my cell phone rang, and I didn't recognize the number, and I answered it, and they said, um, this is, you know, client services at Safeco Field or whatever. Are you Todd Weave? And I said, yes. And they're like, your son's here with us. That's it, right? So, you know, where are you? Uh, well, you know, I said, where, where, where are you? Well, we have a little information booth. It's not far from where your seats were. Um, why don't you come over? We've got him inside here. So uh, Aiden and I briskly walk over there. We turn around the corner, and, and Matthew is sitting. It was all glassed off. Like, you know, you, it wasn't just a, So he was inside this booth, sitting on a stool, just in tears. And, you know, every time I come to this story that we're looking at, I think of this. You might have another story. But the question I have uh, is, what's, who's it worse for, the parent or the child, when you when you get separated like this. And it's interesting that we have a story like this in Scripture of Jesus. Now, not this young, but at 12 years old. So 12 years old, you know, it should be okay by now. Um, But at 12 years old, getting left behind in a city that's not where he lives, uh, and his parents are gone. And they, they went for a day not knowing that he wasn't with them. So, I mean, Jesus' parents were worse than me. But anyway... I mean, not his actual father, father, but anyhow. <laughs> We're starting our fall sermon series, and it's, it's a new year, as many of you know. September is the new year more than January for, for our culture. Uh, we, we order our things according to the school calendar, even, even if you've been out of school for years. Um, and we're calling this series The Living Word. The focus is to look at what Jesus is doing, has done, and will do as the center of our Christian faith. My contention in this is that much of Christian faith is actually not made up of this. And here's the test for you. Think about all the things you think you're supposed to do in your faith, and think about how often those get you to think about Jesus, actually. And, And often there's a real disconnect there. And so what I'm calling it is that we have taken up a faith often that is carrying on without him. 
Many of you have lives that you just carry on without him, just lives in general, don't give much thought to Jesus at all. And I'm not condemning that in any way. I'm just saying it's the truth of the matter. You would say, of course I do, because I don't really believe in Jesus or whatever. But the interesting thing is in the Christian church, often we carry on without him as well. Some have even made commitments of faith, been part of a church for years. But when you're pressed, you're kind of carrying on without him. It can be true in a church as well. All kinds of plans and programs, vision, you know, we're going to have something, a strategy that has four C's or something like that. And, um, and one of them isn't Christ, often. I'm not, I, it sounds harsh. I, I am part of this culture at times that we just get caught up and we forget that at the, at the center of our faith is this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, individually and as a community. And if we don't have that, then we're just doing all kinds of window dressing. And churches are really, really good at window dressing, particularly some. My contention is that it's Jesus, it's not my contention alone, I hope it's a gospel contention, that it's Jesus who does the work of the gospel, and we are called to respond, called even to participate in this work, but our primary function is to become a witnessing community to this work. And I use those words on purpose because you think of witnessing as an individual activity that you're supposed to be a witness, like you as, a, as an individual, and there's truth in that. But the, the full scriptural truth is that our community together, so this church, other churches, but that our community together witnesses by our lives and our interactions with one another, witnesses to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our evangelism to be a witnessing community to who Jesus is, to what he has done, to his love for the whole world, and that we find ways to invite people to respond to this love. So here, the series will be Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, Jesus serving, Jesus praying, Jesus saving, and Jesus reigning, the coming king. And we start with this text, this Luke 2 41 to 52. I always encourage you, bring your Bibles to church um, if you can. We have Bibles at the back, actually, so that if you forgot and you want to look really holy and, you know, pretend you're reading during the sermon, you can do that. So there's Bibles at the back. They're the version that we have on the screen. Um, And it helps sometimes when you're listening to a sermon, and I say, in verse 49, and then you can look at verse 49. It's like a double win. You get to stay awake and you get to stay in the sermon. So... Luke 2, 41 to 52, Jesus is 12 years old. His parents had taken the family to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were an observant religious family. It's important to note this, because when we think of carrying on without Jesus, one of the first things that gets in the way is religion. And church people don't like to hear that because they think they're the good ones and the non-church people are the ones that are kind of need to get with the program. But carrying on with Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the thing that prevents people from carrying on uh, with Jesus and the thing that gets them to forget him first is religion. And so it's not that uh, Jesus' parents are doing a bad thing, but their concept of religion, to a large degree, and it makes sense, right, is ritual and observance and do these kinds of things. They're dutiful. They're good. God would call these people good. There's many times in Scripture that we have a character introduced, and the character is introduced as, and this was an upstanding person. They fulfilled all the obligations of the religion and, and the religious law, right? So according to custom, they go, and when they're done... Uh, They leave, and the text is great, isn't it? Jesus just stays behind. 
like as a 12-year-old boy, he would have the choice. Now, things were different then. I mean, we live in a world where if you, I, this is a true thing, you let your kids play in the backyard without supervision and you might get the cops called by somebody. I mean, now it's like we saw somebody riding their bike in Squamish yesterday, a little boy, and Jen's like, do you think that boy's okay? It's like, you know, he's playing. But it's so unusual now to see, he, didn't, he wasn't too young, but, it's, but back then it was probably different. There wasn't the concept of childhood that there is now. But it's still enough that this story makes scripture that it was unusual that a 12-year-old would just simply stay behind. Like he had appointments and meetings and didn't tell his parents, apparently. You know? I like in this story, for those who think that we're saved by Jesus' sinlessness... It's good that Jesus is sinless. Otherwise, his love wouldn't be so pure. But I'm not saved by the sinlessness. I'm saved by his love. And when I make that mistake, and I think that it's the sinless part that's, that should get the press, then I just become an annoying kind of person. But Jesus' love saved me, saves me. And in this little story, Jesus gets in trouble from his parents. Thanks be to God. It's a wonderful little story. They go, they go for a day without him, more than 12 minutes, and there's no cell phones. So back they go after a day. So they've got another day to get back, right? And then they start looking for him. And where do you think they don't look? I mean, they look in the playgrounds. There were none. They go to the skateboard park. No skateboard park there. But you know, I don't know where you look for a 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem at this time in history, but they know where to look, and all the places they go, he's not there. It, according to the text, how you work out the time, it takes them another day of searching. And finally, in the last place they look, which is always the truth, um, they find Jesus in the temple, temple courts, talking about God, listening. I love that part of the story, listening to the teachers. That would be the worst. It'd be bad enough if you've had like a regent prof come in here or a theologian, someone who really knows what they're talking about. Sometimes I think it with Daniel, like, oh no, I, could, I can kind of pull the wool over most people's eyes, but Bergie's going to know. But anyway, <laughs> he's not here today. <laughs> so this is all true and right. <laughs> um, but Jesus is, is in the temple courts, Jesus, the son of the living God, and he's listening to them. These people talk about God. Wouldn't that be interesting? And he's engaged. And he is, if you want to find out who's smart in the world, like intellectually smart, there's people who are street smart, there's people, find the people who ask good questions. The people who tell you answers tend not to be that smart. They just want you to think they're smart. But the people who ask good questions. And the text says that Jesus was listening and asking questions. And they were astonished. It turns there a little bit because the, the implication is that they were astonished by his questions. But then it, it turns and says, and seems to connect to the astonishment, that he was also giving answers. So he was chiming in into this conversation. And then his parents found him. And his mom, it's perfect. She's the mom of a 12-year-old boy. He just happens to be the savior of the world, but still... Um, and she's upset. I thought I had a note for that. Mom is super upset and super scared, and she says, it's in your text, why have you treated us like this? I, if you're a mom here, you may have said that before. Why did you do that? Why did you do that to me? Don't you care what I feel? Why have you treated us 
like this, we've been searching in great distress. The time when I lost Matt, I didn't, it wasn't bad enough, and clearly it wasn't anything of his fault. So there was no, none of that moment where, you know, he felt like he was in trouble. Um, but here, it's what a lot of parents do if their child wanders off. or they're, At first, they seem to, in some ways, be upset at the child. We've been searching for you and in great distress. There's much to be seen here already. It's not fair to say that this was Jesus' fault, though he stayed behind, as the text said. They had forgotten him. They'd focused on their plans. They were, as the phrase that we're using today, they were carrying on without him. So I want to give two ways that we carry on without him. One, I'm going to give more time than the other. The first one, I'm going to give more time. I want to explain it to you a little bit. We carry on without him in Christian faith by moralism instead of faith. This is a bit of a a favorite topic of mine, I know, but I think we still have miles to go on it. And I would go so far as to say, in my experience and my understanding, my learning and my personal faith, moralism is the death of faith. If you become a moralist, your faith begins to die. Let me explain what I mean. What do I mean by moralism? Well, let me say it, put it this way. You know that voice in your head? And if you're a religious person, you definitely have this voice. If you're not a religious person, you might have this voice in some form. It's the voice in your head that, like, as a young person, I come to Jesus Christ, I accept him. And then something happens in the church and, and in my idea of, like, I want to please God and all this stuff. This voice develops that I walk through the world thinking, is this thing I'm about to do good or bad? Is it acceptable before God or not? Right or wrong? Right? And I kind of walk through the world in my life thinking that's kind of what my faith impels me to do, to think, okay, good or bad, right or wrong. And then, so I do that to myself, right? And if I choose wrong, then I think, oh, I've let God down somehow, right? So what I do is I begin to confuse that voice with the voice of God. I think that that voice that it's challenging me to think about right and wrong, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, by the way, If you don't have a conscience, you're in real big trouble. And so is everybody around you. But that voice in my head that is driving me, is this right or wrong? And then I'll do another thing. Especially if I'm in a religious community, I'll think, and what about the other people? What are they going to think of me if I choose something that they don't like or if somebody in my family does? I still do that. Right? What would happen if my kids don't measure up to somebody else's, not mine, but somebody else's expectations of them? And so I carry this around. Then I do this other thing, and you do too. You might do it more than me. Uh, I take that and I place that onto other people. And I judge them based on how they're responding to the voice in my head. Well, they they chose poorly. They chose wrong. They sinned. And then I can even order the world based on who's a sinner and who's not by this type of behavior. I can do this really bad thing And this is where I can start to identify good people and bad people. Can you imagine anything less Christ-like? Now, that's moralism. It's the death of faith because faith calls us to trust in a living Lord. Alive. Not a list. Not a sheet of rules. 
a living Lord, so that instead of looking at that other person and thinking, I need to make sense of them, I'll listen to this voice in my head, which is my conscience, and I'll judge them based on that. Instead of that, I will say, Lord Jesus Christ, how would you have me relate to my friend Lawrence, who's a great friend of mine? Because the voice in my head is going to tell me things that will probably be judgmental, maybe even mean. But Jesus Christ is going to show me what it means to love somebody. So, in Jesus' day, I'm saying this is, one of the, this is a key way we carry on without him. The voice in our heads can overwhelm the awareness of Christ's presence. Now, how do I know that that voice is not necessarily the voice of Jesus? Conscience can be a good thing, and I believe God can shape our conscience, use it, form it, right? So I'm not saying to ignore that. I'm just saying don't make it God. This voice in our heads can overwhelm the very voice of Jesus Christ. I just gave you one example. How do I know that that voice is not necessarily the voice of Jesus? I know it 100%. Here's how. Because when Jesus walked the earth, just read your Gospels. When Jesus walked the earth, he confounded every single person who confused that voice with God. Every one of them did not know what to make of him. Why? Because he always chose something they couldn't have imagined that he would choose. Heal somebody on the Sabbath? Sit with a woman who'd had all these husbands and care for her and love her and not condemn her? Tell a story about being patient with evil and not taking up crusades against evil in the world? If our church the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ on that issue alone, the forbearance of evil. How different would it be? That's the parable of the wheat wheat and the weeds, right? He confounded the religious teachers of the day who not only had this voice in their head, but they sought to, like, infect other people with it. Well, they would say, teach. But it wasn't only the good, upstanding people that he confounded. He confounded the people who had found themselves on the other side of the definition that this voice in your head does. So, I mean, you have the list in your scriptures, right? Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, people who were always thought of as sinful. And even people who were sick were thought of as sinful, if you can think of a more terrible thing. But that theology still exists today. Something must be wrong with you if you're sick. And that's all they did to lepers in those days. And so people who found themselves and would say to themselves even, I guess I'm a bad person because of this sin or whatever it is. And so they see themselves on this side of that black and white line. Jesus confounds them in how he treats them. He reaches out to them. He touches them. He loves them. They don't know what to make of him either. They say things like, what is he doing here with us? No good holy person would be here with us. We respond to that voice only, and we confuse it with seeking Christ, the living word. Hear this. We may actually become less like Christ. Moralism is the death of faith. That might be hard for some of you to hear, because many of you have committed your life to trying to please God by serving this voice in your head and in other people's heads. 
can I help you get over it? (laughs) Can we reintroduce ourselves to Jesus Christ? Because when you do meet Christ, it is life-giving. And you're not so afraid anymore. The second area in which we carry on without him, and I'm only going to briefly mention this, but I need to because there's always uh, people among us here, myself, others, that this can be a possibility for. Uh, We depend on ourselves instead of depending on God. This is self-explanatory for somebody who, number one, doesn't believe that God exists. Number two, doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is really relevant in this day and age. Uh, But it finds its way into the church as well. But a self-sufficiency. There's a Christian version of this self-sufficiency and there's a non-Christian version. Making our way, achieving our goals, making goals without the living Christ. Uh, Much of this, and it's almost pedantic, like talking to a child to mention it to you, but much of this is just money, 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 money. We actually believe in this world that if you just have enough money, then you'll be fine. When people ask me, how are my kids doing, right? Most of the time they mean, are they going to school, are they working, are they If I say they're doing really well, because you know what? They're really learning to treat people really, really well. They're great guys. People would be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I meant like, do they have a good job? <laughs> right? Self-sufficiency. And some people come to church, and if you're here because of this, I want you to keep coming, by the way. But some people come to church because they think a nice, moral, right, part of your life will help in the self-sufficiency. Carrying on without him. Saying, I don't really need him. I'm trusting in myself. But here's the truth for both of these things. I say it as invitation, but I want you to hear it strongly. We don't have to carry on without him. We don't have to. We can grow in a living relationship with the living word. Second big point is that God is at work. Jesus is in the temple and he's asking questions. And I I just, I, I love this story because I just, I'm not like this generally, but it's one of those places where I go like, way to go, Jesus. Like, um... It's just so beautiful, and I, I'm, I'm a student a bit myself, so I just like that he's sitting with a bunch of people who probably think they're really smart, and they might be, be great people, and he's 12 years old, and he's, they're astonished by him. And his parents find him, and she's, mom says, uh, why did you treat us like this? And his answer in verse 49, you have it there, right? It's such a 12-year-old answer. You have to separate the concept for a minute that this is Jesus, Um, But his 12-year-old answer is like a 12-year-old would answer. Why were you looking for me? What? (laughs) Some of you had kids say those kinds of things to you before. Why were we looking for you? Uh, You're our son. We thought maybe you were dead. But he continues... I mean, it, it is that 12-year-old sense of, everything's fine, I'm here, I'm good. You should just know by some kind of cosmic thing that I'm okay. And uh, why are you looking for me? And then he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Beautiful. I mean, I wonder how Joseph took that, but anyway. 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's translated, depending on your translation. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He says this as a 12-year-old, but it wouldn't be the last time he said this kind of thing. I have some of the the, um, citations on the screen. Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 19, after healing a man on the Sabbath, one of these times he confounded that voice in people's heads. Jesus gave them this answer. Because they said, what, why would you do this on the Sabbath? You must be representing the wrong team. Because why do they think, why do people like that think that Jesus is on the wrong side? It, it's insane for those of us who think, he just healed a man from, he just healed this person. That's a good thing. So what is it that confounds them? Because they think if he's from God, he doesn't break these codes, you see. So they actually ask the dumbest question, why did you heal him? The answer is, because he wasn't well. But they mean on the Sabbath, because that breaks a rule. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. In other words, he's saying, you guys think you worship God. I come from God. I'm the Son of God. God is about his business. It's the same answer he gave to his mom in the temple. Why did you heal this man on the Sabbath? I must be about my father's business. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. John 14, 9, when the disciples would gather before the crucifixion in the upper room, Jesus talking about going to some other place, which you would, and I'm going like, what is he talking about? And he's talking about his crucifixion, his resurrection. And, and Philip asks him, and Jesus answers, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And in this story, saying, I must be about my Father's business, even as a 12-year-old, the point is this. We do not initiate the work of God. Please hear that. We do not initiate the work of God. God is working now. And if I cease to exist on this earth in a moment, or you do, or this church does, God is working still. Our role, our function, is to witness to the ongoing work of God. Our role, our function, is to witness to the ongoing work of God. But how can you witness to it if you don't know it, feel it? So what will you do if you don't know it and feel it? You go back to the voice in your head. It's the next best substitute to an actual living relationship. Look in this story of the astonishment, verses 47 and 48. Mom was astonished. I think the word there, I didn't look up the Greek, um, but my hunch is that the word astonished with, with uh, mom might be something different than the teachers. Uh, her astonished might be like upset. Uh, but there must be some astonishment. If I might be wrong. It might be the same word. And, and the astonishment of the religious teachers was just like, what is going on with this kid? We've been studying for 50 years and he knows more than us. But there was an astonishment. Something bigger than them was happening, and they'd never seen anything like this. At the end of the story, in verse 51, you have this beautiful, you have to be a student, of, actually, you don't have to be a student of Scripture, like a, you know, 
really serious student, you just have to actually read your Bibles, which for some of you might feel like being a student of Scripture at this point. But uh, when you read your Bible, if you just read even just Luke chapter 2, you'll see something. The reason there's 50-some verses in this chapter is it's one of these verses that carries, or chapters that carries through a long piece of narrative that actually starts with the Christmas story. Isn't that something? Starts with Jesus as a baby and ends with Jesus as a 12-year-old. Boom, like that. We actually have in, in Christian history something called the Apocrypha and some other Gospels that didn't make it into the Bible. People chose what would get in and out. And some people really stumble in faith because they think, well, I found out there was a meeting and, they, and they, those people decided what Gospels would be in there. That's true. We believe that was done with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And some of the stuff that didn't make it in includes stories of like Jesus as a little boy, like, like bringing dead birds to life and stuff like that. Uh, kind of a Jesus the magician. But in the actual Gospels that we have, we get Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a 12-year-old. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, after the birth of her child, Mary, do you remember what it says? The shepherds, they came and were visiting. After they saw the angels, the angelic choir, they found the child, they told other people, just what every mom wants to see, a bunch of strangers coming by when she had the baby in in a stable, right? But look what it says about Mary when that's all done. Chapter 2, verse 19. Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. Look at chapter 2, verse 51. Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. Mary is astonished and knows that something bigger than her is happening. God is at work, always at work. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are loved by God. We, not just you, we, the world are loved by God. So that person that you think is the biggest problem in the world or the most evil person in the world, the first thing you need to know about them, or, you know, they're obviously a sinner because they define themselves in whatever way it is. Stop it. The first thing you need to know is that they are loved by God. That's how you make sense of them. No other way. The gospel is that we are loved by God. He has not turned away from us, but has turned towards us in Jesus Christ. And though we are so often caught up in our own fear, our own idolatry, and our own sin, he still turns towards us and offers us life to the full in Jesus Christ. So that if we turn to God in Jesus Christ and seek forgiveness, we will know life. Freedom from fear, freedom from suspicion and hatred and despair. God is at work. I think James, James and Keith and Tierney were at a conference yesterday that... Um, I know the speaker a little bit, and this is a quote from his, so you probably saw this yesterday. But his name is Daryl Guder, and he reminds us about God's working in the world, God's mission. He says, God's church does not have a mission. That sounds like wrong for any evangelical church. God's church does not have a mission. What? He kind of, we do have a mission, but he says the first thing to know is that God's mission has a church. See the difference? God is working. Our mission is not first a function of the church, but first an attribute of God. Our mission, mission itself, is an attribute of God. It means that God is working. That's his very character. But for the voice in your head type of Christian thinking, you don't even need a working God. You just need a list of rules. And you know what the worst thing you can do when you think that way? Is actually you think, well, I guess there is a God who's alive, so I guess his job is to help me fulfill this list. Oh my goodness me. Look what you just did to God. 
You talk about what we need to repent of. It's some of this, even well-meaning stuff we've done. He is working, loving, caring, forgiving. Would you look for this in one another's lives? Loving, caring, forgiving, redeeming, comforting, healing, teaching, leading, transforming. And the final verse is beautiful. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's an ongoing nature to this. So for us, I want to leave you a few things as we close. Signs that you have carried on without him. I love you, by the way. But, so, I mean, I'm supposed to be your pastor, right? So I'm supposed to kind of say, maybe, you've, maybe you're doing some things that you need to stop. Signs that you have carried on without him. Firstly, you're upset a lot. I mean, at other people. You just always feel like you're upset at other people. Somebody's always let you down. Somebody's sinning. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has made bad choices. A corollary to that is the second thing, fear. You, you have an automatic fear button. And the voice in your head produces that, by the way. Because what happens if that voice in your head, if you do the wrong thing, the uh-oh, 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 it's just auto-fear. Religion produces anxiety. Jesus brings peace. Do you want to know how I judge you? Because I judge you. You judge me too. We're good. This is, this is one of the ways I pray for you. Lord Jesus Christ, this person that I love and we're part of the same church together, why do they lack such peace? Oh, I wish they would know you. It's true that our hearts set on him then they're at perfect peace. So if you've carried on without him, try these things. Pray. I say this because I did this once. I prayed. My faith was centered somewhere other than Jesus Christ. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I prayed, Heavenly Father, would you give me a faith that is more focused on Jesus Christ? And he did. You're not saved by self-sufficiency. You're not saved by religion. You don't come to salvation and fullness of life. Even Do you know this? This is not our Savior and Lord. Good Christian thinking calls, you know what it calls the Bible? The Word about the Word. And if you read the Bible and it's not about the living Word, Jesus Christ, then you're reading something less than the Word of God. There's no other name by which we may be saved or healed. Christ is our salvation. So if your life or your faith are focused anywhere else, pray to God who is good and will bless you. Secondly, become astonished. Ask God as you pray for an astonishment. Daryl Guter, who I mentioned earlier, put it this way. He said, if we have experienced God's saving love, we will be witness to it. And if we are not witness to it, then we have not experienced it. The second thing is harsh. I almost didn't want to say it. If we have witnessed God's saving love, If we've experienced it, we'll be witness to it. And if we're not witness to it, we have to ask if we've actually experienced it. Or if we've grown cold. What is he doing? What has he done? What will he do? And finally, we respond 
can participate. There always is the open response anytime you come to this church, every time, every time you come to a service, that if you don't know Jesus Christ and you would like to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to know you, then we want to be able to pray that with you here. You can go to the back. You can pray with somebody you came with. They'll help you through that. Response is to say, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, I trust in you. And secondly, you're called to participate, and we need to grow in this too. Some of you, some of us, are not that great at participating in the work of the church because we think, well, basically it's self-sufficiency and maybe I'll help out a little bit now and then or whatever it is. We're supposed to be the witnessing community to the reality of a living Christ in the world. We need each other to work and work hard. So I invite you to that. To determine to become part of a community formed as a witnessing community and to reach out to others with this love of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and for your word and the fact that we don't worship um, a Savior who used to be, but we worship a living Lord. Guide us, bless us, and open our eyes for what you would have us see today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.